you're pastoring a church, a local church, which is the most important work on the face of the earth, is to lead a community in the name of Jesus as salt and light. But it's incredibly challenging. It's impossible, apart from the grace of God. Well, hey, friends, it's Jason here. want to welcome you to another episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we have Pete Scazzaro with us. Pete is an author and a pastor who's had a huge impact on my life. I feel like his work is important work for all the pastors listening to engage with. Let me tell you a bit about him. He led New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York for 26 years. He planted it with his wife, Jerry. It grew, it multiplied, they planted churches. And in the midst of it, there was a crisis moment that we talk about in our conversation that really led him to think critically about his own interior world, his own walk with Jesus. And out of that came a whole ministry called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship that's impacted my life and thousands of pastors around the world. Him and his wife, Jerry, along with the team at Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, continue to create resources, books, and podcasts to help pastors move from shallow to deepening relationship with Jesus. Some of the books he's written include The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and his latest book released just recently is called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. We talk about these books and more in our conversation. One thing that he said that stood out to me in our chat was that the most important thing you and I can do for the people we lead as pastors is tend to our own walk with Jesus, the health of our interior world. And that's really what the whole conversation centered around. And I think what I like about Pete, I think it's his wiring and also he's from Queens. He doesn't mince words. He's not messing around. He named the stuff. He talked about how we let success and failure in ministry, I should put that in quotes, apparent success and failure in ministry, dictate our decisions more than our real walk with Jesus. And I think this conversation is an invitation for all of us to consider the way our successes in ministry or, you know, in COVID with numbers being down in a lot of cases, like how even what seems like failure, how that's really impacting us and see that's an invitation to look inward at an invitation to walk and find our identity with Jesus. It was a stunning conversation. I was personally impacted. It's convicting, personal, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Before we head into the interview, though, I want to let you know about something we've been working on with the team at the Church Leaders Network. It's really important to us. If you've been tracking with us on social or on the podcast, you know that we're passionate about telling stories about what God is doing in local churches and communities across Canada. God is on the move in our nation, and we feel like our job is to help tell stories, stories that we might have not heard otherwise. So today, at the end of our episode, we're going to tell you a story about a church partnership focused on reaching refugees settling in Canada and how they're able to share the good news of Jesus with them through this creative ministry. It's inspiring and beautiful, and I can't wait for you to hear it. You know, one thing I love about Compassion Canada is their commitment to the local church and to local church leaders. And that's one reason why we are happy to partner with them at CCLN. It's really something that's built into their identity, their initiatives and priorities as an organization. In the 25 different countries where they serve children living in poverty, Compassion invests in local churches, pastors and volunteers to equip and empower the church to reach their neighbors with practical care and the good news of Jesus. Here in Canada, it's the same. Compassion is wholly committed to investing in Canadian local church leaders, in particular during these times where refreshment and connection and refueling is so needed. Compassion does things like national pastors calls and gives away free resources for you as a pastor. They'd even love to just connect and pray for you. I know you'll find rich connection in reaching out to the Compassion Church team, and you can do so through their website at compassion.ca. That's compassion.ca. Pete, it is really special to have this time with you. Thanks for making yourself available to have this conversation. Thank you. Good to be here. You're just saying before we hit record, you start in ministry when you're 19, preach when you're 19, and we're over, is it, was that, four, are we four decades in now? How many, how long are we in now? I'm 65, so that's 46 years. It's amazing. That's a it's long amazing. time. We've got a ton of people listening who are on in the first decade, some yeah. in the second decade of ministry. 
you're thinking about like 19 year old you and you could go and grab hold of them and say, listen to me, buddy, <laughs> this is the things you need to know now. Yeah. What are some of the things that you most would want to communicate? Well, let me begin by saying I'm 65 and I do feel like I am growing uh, and flourishing as much as when I was 19. Hmm. Uh, I am, it's interesting, I'm I'm doing Romans right now in my morning prayer and this kind of gets extended. I, I just can't believe how much I'm like getting out of scripture. I said, I feel like a baby Christian hmm. all over again. And, and I'm just like, so I, I feel tremendous spiritually. So I want to say that I'm in my, you know, it's been 46 years, but, um, you know, I just, I'm grateful for Jesus mm. love for me. Uh, and it's true. It's all true. So all I can say is it just gets better with time. Oh, I love hearing that because sometimes it's not, that's not the trajectory, right? I mean, especially if you've, as you've experienced seasons of it doesn't always feel up and to the right in that space. And so it's just so compelling to hear. I don't know. I just, that's really touching yeah. for me to well, hear. Well, let me just say, you have to go down into the left. Okay. Um, that's part of pastoring. So I think if I could say anything to you as 19 year old self, and is that it? you need to understand that God loves you so much that he's going to take you through walls and dark nights of the soul. Um, you're going to be betrayed. Uh, you're going to be uh, misunderstood, just like Jesus. In other words, mm. you're going to follow the path of Jesus. So uh, up and to the right, I don't even know what that means from a biblical perspective. That's a very Western perspective. But if you think you're going to be in the season of springtime and growing and moving up to the right, that's that's just not biblical. Biblical mm. you know, growth is seasonal. There's summers, there's winters, there's falls, there's springs. So you have to have these down seasons of winters. Uh, so I would prepare you, say you're 19, listen, you got to look at the long view. First of all, you got to look at the eternal view. God chose you before the universe was ever created. Okay, just imagine this. He's had you in mind. Mm. And then he, he chose you by name. He called you. He justified you. He... Uh, and he's going to glorify you. God's got this enormous plan through eternity that with your name on it, and he has something for you to do here on earth in this short earthly life. you got to see the big span of God's love for you that will just never fail, never let you go. Nothing's going to really separate you from God's love for you. And so you're pastoring a church, a local church, mm -hmm. which is the most important work on the face of the earth is to lead a community in the name of Jesus as salt and light, but it's incredibly challenging. I mean, it's like, it's impossible apart from the grace of God. And and so um, I just, I, I, you have to understand like you're doing something which is incredibly challenging hmm. and, and uh, but the most important work you could be doing as a, hmm. you know, as a follower of Jesus. Pete, I've read a number of your books, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Church, and so much of what you describe flows out of your own journey of planting new life with Jerry. And so can you take us into just your story a little bit? I'd love to hear about the planting journey and, and you know, and, and the growth of it and what that growth yeah. did to you and Jerry and the team that you were leading. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we came to Christ at 19 and we're involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Parachurch, uh, planting Christian fellowships, eventually ended up in seminary and planting a church in New York City. So my formation was, I would consider classic evangelical in terms of, it was it was very good on so many levels in terms of you know, Bible study, prayer, evangelism. It, it was so good, but it was very over-focused on doing, for mm. sure. Um, and that was the culture. And so I, I was going always very hard. And I really, my I, I always thought my primary gift was evangelism. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's apostolic, you know, break new ground. And so I started planning a church in New York, and we planted other churches. Uh, and it was very clear within you know, four or five years, this was unsustainable. Mm. Um, and my inner life could not sustain what I was doing. So the cracks were everywhere. And yeah, what were some that, of those cracks? What were you seeing? Well, I got a number of cracks. I mean, first of all, my marriage wasn't going well. That was crack number one. But I was exhausted and tired, and I was not enjoying Jesus any longer. Mm. I, was work I was working so hard. Um, and, uh, we were recycling a lot of the same old problems in church. People were not changing very deeply. And I was like, something's really wrong here. 
Um, so there was a so the church pastoring was really hard because as my wife likes to call it, there's a lot of stupid suffering. There's there's clean pain and dirty pain. We had a lot of dirty pain. Um, and that was just we were just not equipped to lead a community well because we had gaps in our own discipleship. And so we were in our at that point early 30s. Um, and understand at that point, I remember looking around and we were again, we were in the Queens, New York City. So multiracial environment, multicultural environment, among the working class, lots of poor. It was a difficult environment. So I was I saw bodies of pastors everywhere. I was like, people weren't mm. making it. I'm like, Lord, is that gonna be me? <laughs> you know? And um, you know, I'm the kind of guy to just, you know, I could take a lot of pain. Uh, but I was fortunate because my wife quit and uh, that her quitting the church saved my life because it got me to therapy. I would mm. never have gone otherwise. So if I'd married a different woman, probably that wasn't strong enough to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. Mm. Uh, so, uh, cause I, I really do feel like I was not equipped to lead a local congregation. Um, not well. I was not equipped properly. I was. It was very. It was a very academic education. It was very skill based. It was knowledge based, but it was lacking so much um, richness of formation that um, it was not sustainable. Well, I can say it wasn't sustainable. So I would. That's why my work is like. Oh my gosh! Like we got to draw from the global church. We got to draw from historical theology. We got to draw from the Orthodox and. Uh, Roman Catholic streams uh, while remaining missional. But mm. if we're going to do serious formation of pastors and leaders, we have got to get outside of reformed evangelicalism, charismatic church, Pentecostal church theology that can be very narrow. Although, you know, I'm a, I would consider myself an Orthodox, you know, Christian in terms of my stream is evangelicalism. Not the political stream, but the in terms of theologically, the terms um, are complicated. These they days. are complicated, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm you know very committed to scripture. But uh, it, it take to lead you. You've got to invest a great deal of time in your formation and seminary. Mm -hmm. I, I believe in seminary. It's all it's helpful, but it's only a small piece. Hmm. Um, you've got to be a lifelong learner on a journey uh, hmm. for your formation. So I'm still growing at sixty. You know, sixty five. I'm growing in. God's ever moving by the spirit, right? And so I'm always flowing. And it's not like, oh, that was bad that season and now this is good. No, it's that was then and this is now. And so you gotta be open to moving with the spirit of God and changing with him as he's unfolding his plan through history. And I think that's, and for our lives. Mm. Uh, so that's why being a learner, being curious is so, so critical. Mm. The language you use in your work and others have used as well, speaks this idea of an emotionally healthy spirituality. Mm -hmm. And can you bring some definition to that? Yeah, so I would say that the, the, the intersection of what I think I'm bringing to the table into the discussion of leadership development, spiritual formation, discipleship is the contribution of uh, that emotional health and spiritual maturity can't be separated. <clears throat> uh, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, that whole self-awareness of what's going on on the inside of me and the whole emotional component, family of origin, material, going back three, four generations, things like limits, loving well as a criteria for the measurement of your love for God, all that emotional world, which we can define in just a moment. And then it's also the second contribution is monastic spirituality, going mm. back to the Desert Fathers, that my work out of a local church has been translating these two things practically mm. into a local congregation that's been my life work um and so i'm not an academician i'm not you know i'm a pastor of a local church i went and got my doctor of ministry in marriage and family because mm. i wanted to get the riches of that whole field uh and then integrate it into formation of leadership so that's the whole emotional component so, I thought, so you know jerry and jerry's my wife is a research and developer too so we both have this kind of a thing or of of learning. So just, you know, mm -hmm. like here, we've been influenced by so many streams, Quakers, interpersonal neurobiology, family systems is my doctorate, monastic spirituality, historical theology, global church history, missions. And you know, we just got, I mean, we did a lot of streams mm -hmm. um, that we've integrated into who we are and brought, and basically over decades working them out in a local multiracial church that was missional in the middle of Queens. 
And so I think we're like, you know, uh, so I write, I write out of my journey because that's, I was doing the, I was doing theology in context. Like Jason, mm. you're pastoring in Vancouver. You're doing theology in context. I think your Canadian context, you're in you know, yeah. West Canada, which is different than, you know, East Canada, Toronto. It's just a different culture. And so you're, in a sense, nuancing and pioneering, how do I do mission theologically? So much like Paul, as he went in the empire, he was doing theology in Corinth and Galatia. And he it was it was in context hmm. uh, as it was on as the mission was unfolding. So I think that's that is the way to do theology in context. So, you know, so now because now my context, you know, is global. Like I was on a phone last week with two Orthodox Coptic hmm. priests, young, young in their, you know, probably early 40s, late 30s. And, uh, you know, this talking about this guy, Father Lazarus, who lives in the cave of St. Anthony and outside Cairo, and just talking about nuances of their theology and how it intersects with emotionally healthy discipleship. And it was fascinating, you know, mm. fascinating as their parishioners push back against them talking about emotionally healthy discipleship and say, why are you bringing in this Protestant into our Orthodox church? Right. We go, we go back 2000 years. You know, those people are heretics. It's just, yeah. it's just, so it's fascinating. So I, I love that about your work, by the <laughs> way, is just, it's this, um, and I think it's a deep value for this whole, for this podcast and for the kind of community we're building is this like learning from various streams, like celebrating, hey, I'm part of a stream. Like those Orthodox yes. priests are not going to pretend they're Protestant. The Protestants don't yes. even pretend that. And, you know, you're rooted in a place and also, you know, community, but you're yeah. drawing from these different streams. And then I think there's these binaries that are created. Like one that I've been thinking a lot about is like a binary, like charismatic and contemplative. But yeah. it's like, it's like, that's a, and that's what I see in your ministry that I just love is like, you don't have to leave out the charismatic to pursue the yeah. contemplative. In fact, there might be a marriage or an interaction yeah. and where did that start for you, Pete? We'll come back. I won't forget to come back to the emotional health, spiritual maturity yeah. conversation. But where did that start for you? This idea, like I can draw from multiple streams in my formation and my outworking of this theological grid. Well, I think what happened was I ended up, you know, and I mentioned earlier in 1996, when 1994, when I was in so much pain, pain is a great, you know, way that God gets our attention. So we were about six, you know, six, seven years into the church plant. We planted four churches. I'm pastoring one of them. I'm pastoring just to get a sense of how, how much pathology I have, Jason, okay, I'm pastoring one church in two languages, all right, so, and planting other churches at the same time. So I was, I was out of control. And at that point, we had three daughters, a fourth was on the way, and Jerry felt like a single mom. And when one of our congregations that we planted had a split, I was in enormous pain. I was just like, like, my marriage wasn't going well. We loved each other. We had a friendship for eight years before we kind of came to, before we got married. But we had problems, uh, but we loved each other, and we were trying to serve Jesus and seek first His kingdom. And things were everything was not being added on to us. So all that pain led to me finally going to a therapist's office. Which, so I was not that open to learning from other people. I would consider myself kind of we were we were like charismatic slash Pentecostal. We would be going to Toronto for those meetings, and when the revival broke out there, we. You know, Kansas City Prophets, Vineyard. I went to Princeton Seminary, Gordon Conwell. So I had a pretty broad education into varsity staff for three years. So we had a kind of, you know, we had a kind of a broadness to us, but it was still very narrow. Mm. Still very narrow. Um, because I would have seen going to a therapist was for really screwed up people. But I was in enough pain. I went to a therapist's office and now he's saying, How do you feel? And I'm like, what do I know how I feel? You know, I don't do feelings. That's for wimps. You know, I do the word, I do prayer, I do scripture, you know, I do, we plant in churches. So um, that was, that was how everything opened up for me, Jason, because mm. I became disillusioned, first of all, with evangelicalism as I knew it, because the kind of people that we were producing in our church in terms of disciples, I didn't even want to be around some of these people. And I led them to Christ. Okay. I'm like, I'm like, something's wrong here because they're not changing very much. It's shallow. And I saw the shallowness and I said, this is, this is not good. And, and it was interesting because we were in a poorer area, uh, you know, I, I meet Christians I'm like, they're, they're, no, they're going to live in a nice suburb to put their kids in a good school. And understand at the time we were living next to prostitutes and drug dealers. And, you know, we were really in a tough spot. And I heard people say, I'm not going there. I'm going to, I'm going to serve Jesus, but I'm going to serve Jesus on my own terms. I'm going to, and I'll be like, well, wait a second. 
wait, wait a second. But I just realized American Christianity, or I don't, I can't, I'm not going to speak for Canada, North American Christianity, well, at least United States Christianity is like the McMansions. You can have everything. You fit Jesus in beautifully. And racism just goes on because no one's changing that deeply anyway. And that's why, I, if I can be so bold, the reason the church can be co-opted by a political party is because it has no depth. And so we just get, the fact that a church aligns with any political party, you know, has always been a disaster for 2,000 years of church history. So this is nothing new. It's happened before. And, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a symptom of something mm. so deep, of shallowness. And I saw it. And I was like, because we were trying to bridge, we had African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, all in the same room. And I could see that this isn't going to work. Mm. This isn't going to work. And it wasn't working initially because the level of formation was so shallow. And so that is when I realized, and then, then I got my own problem. So all that, going into that therapist's office was like a shock because my marriage wasn't going well. So Jerry was forcing the issue. And then it just opened me up like, oh my gosh, I am dead emotionally. And then, I, then my family of origin stuff was all very apparent to me. And it just launched me on a journey that that's when I realized that, okay, what I've been taught in seminary and in my formation so far has been missing some really big elements. Mm. And that's what launched us on this huge journey that we've been on for over 26 years now. Mm. Capture the, what are those missing components? One of the things that I love just to help you to help me with is I um, think like you, um, really impacted by movements of Pentecostalism and vineyard and signs and wonders. I yeah. love inviting people to prayer ministry because yeah. sometimes God heals people or Absolutely. there's tears and breakthrough. Um, and I think one of the things I noticed in me was a resistance to the language of formation, the deeper work. Because somehow I thought maybe it revealed like a lack of faith in the potential for God's breakthrough. Because when you believe that God can do the zap transformation um, and you want, and, and he does. And so it's like this, I've been thinking about the language of breakthrough and process, like this deep churning over time, the slow transformation mm -hmm. that is spiritual formation that you've described. And what we've all talked about this breakthrough. And I just wonder like, how, how have you found language it's really um, good. To, to marry? Because they're both at work and that is probably a, a robust, I bet a spiritual formation without breakthrough, like radical supernatural intervention would be broken as well. And so I'd love to hear how you've sort of built frameworks for that. Jason, I'm going to give you something to think about. You may not like it, but you, hopefully you'll think about it. Okay. Take me so, there. so, uh, you know, the meetings where the spirit of God falls and, you know, prayer ministry, you know, just, you know, another baptism of the spirit, you're knocked down. And I've been knocked down good and solid, you know, probably three, four times right on the floor. I mean, I, I have been in meetings where the glory of God was tangible. I mean, just mm. unbelievable. And there are, and so you can easily just seek these, you know, healings and miracles and, 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 and I'm, I'm all for it. There's a place for it. Absolutely. But there is no, all that's, that's giving you power and energy by the Holy Spirit to die. There is no substitute to taking up your cross, being crucified, and following the person of Jesus to mm -hmm. the cross and dying so you can be resurrected. There is no skipping over that. So you want to go to a revival meeting, great. It's going to give you, it's going to give you the energy. God's going to touch you. But you're not going to skip over mm -hmm. getting crucified because Jesus was crucified. And there is no other way that God's going to be able to change you unless he pulls out of you those deep weeds. There's mm -hmm. deep pride, deep self-will, deep greed, deep... Envy, all that stuff. God's got to get at you because he loves you so much. He's got to, all those false layers got to come off you. So people want the anointing to reinforce their false self and do ministry that way so they feel good about themselves and get validation. That's a disaster. But I know enough to know that you still have to die and you're going to have to make the difficult choices. We've got to fill the house up. We can cast the demons out of you. Yeah, and I've cast many. Listen, I, I, there was a season we were casting demons out of tons of people. I mean, we had a major deliverance ministry going on. And I realized, oh, we're, we're, 
they're they're not changing either. They changed temporarily, and then I'm right back to where we started. And I realized, what? Well, because I, I, their house has to be filled up. That's a lot mm-hmm. of work. That's that's Jesus and the twelve discipleship. Oh, and I don't want to. It's too much. I don't. I don't want to do that. Well, the, seven more will come back. It's gonna be mm-hmm. worse. And I, I again, I'm a little older than probably most of your listeners, and I'm just telling you, there's no shortcut. Jesus didn't do a shortcut with the twelve. Think about it. What makes you think you can get a shortcut? So yeah, they had the Mount of Transfiguration, but they also had to lose everything, end up on the bottom and fail and be a mess. I mean, it's just, there is a journey that God has for you and for me. But if you're going to be formed as a pastor, leader of a church, he has to take you through great suffering because he loves Mm -hmm. you too much to leave you the way you are. Again, I, I I ended up taking the approach, Jason. I got so tired of actually deliverance stuff because I have no problem with throwing a demon out of someone, but you know, it gets very messy. You know, you lots of deliverance ministry. And I just like, I don't know, let's fill up the house and then demons have you, you demons have nowhere to go. They get basically get pushed out. You have and mm. Wimber talked about this at one point in a, in a in a meeting, was like, Oh yeah, you can goes no matter how you cut it, you can drive the demon out, you gotta fill up the house, or you can fill up the house and the demons have no more room to be there. I decided I was tired of public displays mm. in meetings. I got really tired after a while. And, and I, you will too. I'm just letting you know. You can only live off that for so long. By the second, third decade, you're like, this is not producing the fruit I'm looking Especially if you're a local church pastor, because you know what's going on then. You're like, you're, you're looking, you're building a community, which is mm. really hard. And you're seeing people over, you know, not just weeks, you're seeing people over years. In all the transitions of life, funerals and deaths and difficulties and, you know, dead children, you know, I mean, all the pain of life and you get to walk with them, which are all formational moments. And you can do tremendous formation with people as a local church pastor, but it's, it's labor. Paul called it labor. Think of labor of a woman giving birth, but it's so, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, the gift of Mm -hmm. discipling and forming people. It's a great privilege. Thank you so much um, for sharing that. You made a statement earlier, um, and this is like one of the core premises of your work is spiritual maturity and emotional health. They're not two separate categories. They have to be married. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So um, again, I, I... I know people who are into the contemplative and, and, you know, silence, stillness and all that, but they're emotionally maladjusted. And, uh, you know, they're infants emotionally. And there are people really into emotional stuff. They go to 12-step groups, they go to therapy, but they don't have a deep walk with God. We're looking to marry them both. So when I talk about mm-hmm. emotional health, I'm, I'm referring to that when people are with you, they experience you as safe, approachable, non-defensive, not easily triggered, um, the most loving person on the face of the earth, like Jesus. Uh, and so, therefore, you've done a lot. You're, you're very self-aware of what's going on inside of you, uh, your losses, your griefs. You've integrated them into your life. You're, you've done work on your family of origin and the negative legacies and how they've impacted who you are. Um you're, you've integrated a theology of limits, uh, brokenness, vulnerability. I mean, these, these is, you, you've, you've done this, you're, you're, you're on that journey. That's why to me, I, if I had a seminary, I'd require people to be in therapy as part of their seminary education. Um, and I'd require them to be like in a monastic, they'd be like novices doing offices, you know, a few times a day and having a rule of life. And it would be a combination of monastic spirituality with, um, you know, the whole emotional, like you'd be doing therapy. So I, if you're a pastor and you've not done some, a serious round of counseling, um, that's a problem because you're supposed to be the most differ, highly differentiated person in this church family. You're, you're the most mature person, hopefully, in the family, which means you've done a lot of work. But here you are, you're leading a church and people are coming in with all their stuff from their families of origin. And you're now building the new family of Jesus, but you're not even aware of your own family and how it's in, interacting, how it's impacted you. And yet you're leading all these other families. Do you understand? It's not, you're just recycling the same old stuff because you can't bring people where you've not gone. Mm. 
you, so, so that's why we say the most important thing is your being, B-E-I-N-G, that it's your being that's so critical. And if we, if you let Jesus change your being, your whole church will change. Don't worry mm -hmm. about strategy. Don't worry about the, you know, how do we do this? And you go, don't worry, it'll, it'll, it'll work out. That's not mm -hmm. the most important thing. The most important thing is you. I had a guy, a pastor who actually leads a movement yesterday. And he was frustrated because um, he's waiting on his wife to change. Uh, and I said, and we were doing, I, we run a, a leader's course, emotionally discipleship course, we're in it for pastors. And we're doing his grief and loss chart, looking at his, at his own life. And, and I said to him, I said, you're waiting for her? And I said, the funny thing about it is, I think God's waiting for you. Hmm. I said, you're waiting for her? No, he's waiting for you to change. I said, it's, you're the problem in the marriage, not her. I said, what do you keep looking at her for? I said, you don't do emotions. You don't know how to attach and connect because your family of origin didn't do attachment connection. You're a doing machine going 100 miles an hour. I mean, it'd be very hard to be married to you. Of course, she's not interested. I wouldn't be either. I said, but you're looking at it's it's so the journey is you changing mm. and the marriage will change trust that I, I i wouldn't worry about her at all i'd worry about yourself mm. he was like in shock i said i said it's and you got this whole movement of churches i said the most loving thing you can do for your movement is take the time to look at yourself do some work on yourself and uh so anyways good conversation mm. you use the language of I was really struck by describing like a pastor, you could leader, whichever, as safe, approachable, not easily triggered. And what was what struck me by that is the amount of times I've heard said or maybe felt, and I wonder if people I have to ask the question as well, how do the people that I lead feel? I can't tell him or her. Um what, I, what I'm processing because he might get upset or it might trigger him or it's, yeah. he's not approachable. And um, I wanna say this really carefully because I don't like throwing shade at like a previous generation. Um, so that's not what I'm doing here. But we have a generation of leaders who are gonna be leading, if they're not already leading, who felt that way about their senior leader, about their pastor. He was not approachable. He was easily triggered. He was threatened by me. And then what we're doing, this is where it's about my generation, we're doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Like we're just, we're just becoming that same non-approachable, easily triggered, not safe leader. And um, it's hard to spot in ourselves, I think. I think it's really hard because we, we're, if, if you're leading something that's successful, in quotes, successful, or like yeah, yeah. no one's telling you you're not approachable, you're not safe because you're winning or whichever. And no one wants to disappoint you because you're not approachable. So they're not going to tell you you're not approachable. <laughs> yeah, um, but those words hit me. And I don't know. I just want to maybe create space for you to, how do we diagnose that in ourselves? Or how do we begin the journey of going like, yeah, I just don't want to pass by because those words felt really potent to me. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about you, you, humility versus entitlement. I mean, it's not like your generation or any generation has a, it's just so easy to, if you build something, it's like, this is mine. You begin to attach to it. Mm -hmm. One of my heroes in church history is Meister Eckhart. He was a 1300, 14th century, 13th century Dominican monk. And uh, he's a tremendous, he says basically to follow Jesus is really about detachment. And not being attached to anything, but Jesus. Very difficult. In other words, that the call of our lives is, this is why silence is so important, is letting go. Mm. Then I hold on to nothing. So that's why for me, silence each morning throughout my day is so critical. Practice of silence, stillness, offices, days alone is because I I, I need to constantly be letting go. So I, I, I'm not attached to this interview that, oh, does Jason like me? You know, I'm looking for validation from people or the ministry's gotta be a certain size. No, because I'm not attached to it. I'm not attached to anything but him. I'm, I'm like Mary in Luke chapter uh, one, where the angel comes to her and says, you know, Jesus is gonna be born in you. And she goes, may it 
you know, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me, as you've said. She's not attached. She's losing everything, her reputation, you know, you know, her, her family, her marriage, future marriage, but she's empty hmm. so that God can fill her. Well, that, that's, that's the model of the Christian life, that I've actually lost my life, that I might save it and find it. That's the, so whoever loses life will find it, which in our case as pastors means I'm, I'm, so let's so say COVID right now, and I've talked to many pastors, you mean your church went down to a third of what it was. I mean, it's devastating. Mm. Right? So, so, but yeah, what a gift because you're shrinking and succeeding. You're, because you're not getting your validation from externals anymore. You're free. You're not attached. Your whole life work is that Jesus might be birthed in you and through you. That's all that matters. I want Christ to be birthed in and through my life. That's what my life is. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I live in a place of surrender, not attachment. Mm. I'm letting go. And it's very freeing when you set plans for your church plant or your church you're pastoring. It's like, yeah, you've got some priorities. You're going to go in this direction, but you're always with an open hand. God may choose to blow the whole thing up and give your ministry away to five other churches in the community. Okay. I mean, you're just... You're just following him you're mm. you're you want jesus to be birthed in and through you and you don't have an agenda what that should look like in terms of results Does that makes sense you you've got some yeah. goals but you're you hold them very lightly you've got some directions but you don't have to have anything that's why one of the questions i always ask, ask you know folks is you know and i myself you know there came a point i realized oh i'm using the church to get validation oh so I'm preaching to get validated. Like that's a problem. Do you understand? So that's a that's an emotional health issue. It's a spiritual issue. You can't separate them that easily. But like, when you see these kind of things in yourself, or you're envious of the person, you know, the person's church is bigger than yours, or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit saying something's wrong here, and you want to do some work. Hmm. So I don't know what to do. Well, believe me. Get spiritual director, get help. There's help out there. There's a lot of resources in the body of Christ. Um, but you want to get free from people's validation that you're actually free to do whatever God wants you to do. Hmm. We've talked about this already, but I wanted to bring up the specific language you use of facing your shadow. Mm -hmm. and I know we've touched on these themes, but I find that just a really helpful yeah. description of something that you're inviting us into. Can you speak a bit more to that? Yeah, we all have, I call them vulnerabilities, uh, shadows, um, often unconscious stuff that's going on inside of us that we don't, that it surfaces sometimes like, oh my gosh, you know, where'd that come from? And so that needs to be brought to the light um, and explored. Um, if you're not, that, that's why this kind of inner work is so critical to be doing that the most important work you're doing is following Jesus yourself. That is your number one role as a pastor leader is to follow Jesus. What that means is you're opening yourself up to the spirit of God into those horrible places of vulnerability where, okay, I didn't get validated as a, so I, I came from an abused family, totally chaotic, didn't get validation from my, father or mother you know like would have been appropriate as a child growing up so i missed those developmental stages so here i was a leader well i do it out unconsciously i not consciously in the church just i was a leader they're happy to have me as a pastor right get the crowd in but i was getting validation from i was finding my sense of self from mm. the work well that's a problem but that revealed gaps inside of me so um that i i needed to do some work uh that's why we we are big believers in genogram uh, doing your family of origin stuff. So we, we try to create tools for discipleship in churches to yeah. kind of bring it to people. But And for leaders, the next level to go into it. And there's a place for specialists. You know, So I had abuse. I needed to see a therapist to work through some of the abuse of my family of origin. That was so common. It was like being in a car accident. You know, I, I, I got I had broken legs and arms. I, I just, I needed some serious work. And I, and God used it. I, I I walk with a limp. I'm a very broken guy, Jason, but I'm walking. I'm I'm feeling quite free actually. But I'm I'm broken. I, I mean, I'm under no illusions. And but I can connect with people in my own brokenness, regardless of what their brokenness might be. But 
we're all broken, but I think a pastor mm. who has power, because being a pastor is tremendous power, anybody in leadership has power, who's not done inner work, inner work on their shadow is dangerous. Very dangerous because you, we, we're, in, we're we're speaking for God. I mean, we're in this. I mean, to be a pastor or a leader in a church, I don't care if you're not a board member or a, even children's church worker or a youth worker. I mean, it's a lot of power to be speaking in the name of Jesus and people are listening to you. So we have a responsibility to do our own discipleship. So we're not speaking of things that we're not living. It's a great temptation to be preaching things that aren't in us because they sound good or people are going, amen, or you get a response. Um, and you can use your gifts and cross a line where it's really, you're, you're getting validation from people. It's about you. It's a dangerous place. And eventually it all comes out. I, I have bad news for you, Jason. We've been having scandals since I came to Christ. There've been scandals mm. of pastors and leaders. So I got 45 years. It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. The reason it's not going to stop is because our formation is not, is so shallow. We just, and we push, because we're so into results so quickly, we just push mm. people forward based on their gifts and anointings. And we want worldly success so badly that, uh, and we don't have the model to do this kind of formation that people get beyond, their gifts are beyond their character. Their outer life is beyond their inner life. And it's not sustainable. And so actually the growth of this ministry or church is actually the worst thing that could ever be happening to you. The very thing you're pushing for and striving for and trampling on people to get is actually the worst thing for you. If your character is not caught up to it. Hmm. That's why when, I, when people get famous, quote famous, young at a young age, scares me really scary to me i'm like oh god they think oh they got a church of you know thousands of people and i'm like oh no that is not good and everyone's helping them and applauding them and i'm like oh lord you know so i yeah you know, i just you know I'm just I'm, it's not going to change until we actually change hmm. the way we're doing formation of pastors and leaders hmm. um and we stop applauding things that shouldn't be applauded yeah, the slickness and all that stuff. Some friends and I started, I think this is like, I, I'm bad at timelines. More than five years ago now, um, I came to a point, it was almost Christmas, or it was after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, and I felt just like so hollow inside, man. Like it was like, it was silent in my house that I had come down from the rush of all the Christmas activities and the silence was so, my kids were sleeping, Rach was resting, and I'm in my room. I probably had preached a couple days before, had to preach coming up, and I didn't know what to do with coming down from all the buzz. And I sent like an SOS to a few friends that are in ministry with me. And I said, guys, it's not looking good in my interior world. Can we start meeting together? So we started meeting every Thursday morning before work. Mm -hmm. And we went through uh, renovation of the soul or renovation of the heart by Dallas Willard, and then yeah, yeah. and then emotionally healthy leader, which I'm holding here oh, by you. Okay. And we took our time, took our sweet time. So we'd read a chapter, discuss, sometimes revisit it. And so I have a very marked up, wow. emotionally healthy leader here, and so wanted to express gratitude wow. for that because it was absolutely life changing. What like came I, we, What came out of the field was like the biggest thing you think that God brought to you the courage to look inside and to see what was there and to stop all of the forward momentum on ministry mm. and to say like it was just the courage it was the friendship to say one of my friends that was there a pastor just in the city you know, i can see his the city he passes in over the hill behind me and his name is jason is a beautiful guy and he goes and he put words to what i was feeling he said one of our first weeks I'm scared to look inside to see what I'll find there, like to really slow down and see. But then what you did in this book that was so impactful for me is like, we'd gone through renovation of the heart uh, by Willard and started thinking about spiritual practices. We're trying these things out. We're doing silence. We're doing slow down stuff. We're 
um, thinking about Sabbath now, we're thinking about rule of life, we're thinking about scripture memorization and we're practicing this stuff. But I'm a leader and I can't shake that part of me. I, I think I'm yeah. called to shape and form. And so reading your book, it began to marry the develop of my interior world to how I lead teams, mm. how I think about my leadership. And so I think about um, the chapter that talks about dual relationships, the challenge of those, you know, and hey, all of a sudden you're leading a church, you're their pastor, now you have staff and they're also now working for you and you name the power at play. And then it was also your friend as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I remember we parked there, I think we spent two weeks just talking about dual relationships, how complicated they are. are. Um, one chapter that really, maybe I'd love for you to comment on was leading out of your marriage. Yeah, yeah. Because Rachel doesn't want to co-lead the church with me. She's like, Absolutely. don't make me do that. Nor does, nor did Jerry ever want to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Rachel's like a better Christian than I am. She's a more integrated faith than I do. She's like, just don't make me. So, but then, but what you provide language for, and maybe I'll stop talking. I'd love for you to speak to it is, hey, you're leading out of that marriage. Like as it goes with that marriage, so it will yeah. go with your church. Uh, can you speak to that idea? Yeah, yeah. Or and it was leading out of marriage and your singleness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, I think, important. It's a massive topic. It's a ma massive topic. Let me just say something. Basically, you triggered a couple of things in my brain. You asked me earlier, which I'm, which was, what would I say to myself at 19 when I started? I wish I wish someone to put their arm around me, put like you know, I, you know, I, Pete, you know, you're okay. Like 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 you're you're great you haven't done anything yet you're great and just like you know you know you're my beloved you know doing oh please that jesus got from the father like like there's no rush like just take mm. your time just relax and go slow i i was in such a rush and it was such a mistake you know and, and uh when you rush you're always bypassing something and and uh just you know you, you watch your body if you're feeling rush something's wrong mm. and uh when you're feeling that anxiety so anyway, well, you know, before I get to the marriage thing, I want to let's go to that. I wrote Emotionally Leader after I stepped down from New Life. I'd been there 26 years as the lead pastor. And I saw two extremes of leadership. I, one extreme was the Willow Creek, which was basically evangelicalism, which let's draw from all the secular models out there. You know, didn't matter if they're atheists or whatever, just but whatever, they're leadership stuff. And we took secular models and we paste them on the church to grow the church. The other extreme, I, I would see all these folks that were like a Henry Nowen, folks who were into like slow down spirituality, but they weren't building anything. They were retreat leaders. They were, they were, you know, they were therapists, Henry Cloud, Townsend, whom I know personally, great guys, but they weren't pastoring churches. And I was like, I, I feel like there's no, in, there's no model. Yeah. Like everything's these two extremes. I wrote the book out of basically my journals, and I just said, "What are the?" F and I basically there's four issues that, um, in, the, in the inner life, have to be established, solid, like deeply grounded. Because if you build up without them being in order, eventually the building's gonna gonna fall. And the four was face your shadow. Um, the second was lead out of your marriage or singleness. The third was slow down for loving union. You have a slow down life. Of and I, and the fourth was practice Sabbath delight. And I remember I went and did, you know, like I knew pastors that were growing their churches. I'm talking about churches, like big churches. And yet they were in the middle of an affair. Okay. So they're having an affair and they're preaching on marriage and family and sexuality in the middle of a full-blown affair. And the church is adding hundreds and hundreds of people. Now you put that all together. That's the reality. So when I talk about slowing down for loving union, I was like, you can get away with it for a while, but loving union with Jesus. Um, but you better slow down your life so that you're not just riding on your gifts and your or your experience. Because the older you get, the more you can ride in your experience. And it's even easier to skim on your relationship with God to get the ministry done. And you can keep growing the church without Jesus. I know, I've done some of that. But the second big pillar was lead out of your marriage. And I just said, you know, I saw so many marriages over the years just collapse. And mine almost collapsed. So we went on a journey, not just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I got my doctorate marriage and family, but I was like, I knew marriage was key to discipleship, but no one talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so there was like decades of journey. And um, basically you have to go to historical theology to get a theology of marriage because we don't have one in evangelicalism or Pentecostalism. We just have like, you know, be faithful and build a church, you know, build a church. But uh, leader of your marriage means that 
not that your wife or, or husband's a co-pastor. What that means is that your oneness with your spouse, after your oneness with Jesus, that commitment is your value you've made to your wife, that oneness, and that your whole ministry flows out of that oneness with him or her. And you're meant to be a sign and wonder of the depth of the love of Jesus to the people you lead in the world, which means that means you got to invest back to invest time in your discipleship with Jesus. You're investing a lot of time in your discipleship with your spouse because you're leading, you made a vow to lead out of that place. You didn't have to be married, but you are married. Now you're a leader. So getting discipled into your marriage to be a sign and one that speaks of the, of the power of the gospel, the depth of the mm. love of God is so foundational um, to everything you're building in the church. Um, you can't separate the two. You can't separate your abiding in Jesus and abiding in your spouse. But yet we easily do separate it in our present theology. So, it's really, so all this stuff is the, theology. But um, so for Jerry and I, we were in our, our mid-30s when we had this kind of you know, encounter with God and so emotionally healthy discipleship launch. But, but I made a decision. I told her, and imagine I'm 35. The church was, I don't know how many years old, you know, five or six years old. And I realized... You know, this, I mean, it was it was a God, it was totally just you know like everything I've done for the last twenty six plus years has flowed out of a revelation of God coming to our marriage, hmm. and that is I, I that our marriage was key to everything, and that I said to Jerry, if at any point you don't feel like I'm putting you above the church or every other demand on my life, I will resign from being lead pastor and I'll go do something else because it's not the church's fault; it's my ability and character to set mm. proper boundaries. But from this point forward, um, I'm going to lead out of our marriage. And if, and she said, I'll give you six months. She didn't believe I could do it. And when, uh, you know, and so now it's years later. And even to this day, I mean, if, if I ever disappear from the scene, uh, you'll know it's because I, you know, Jerry's like, she quit again because, uh, uh, you know, I'm not leading out of my marriage. We're here. My, Jerry's mom died about a month ago. And, uh, so yeah, it's been a tough season for her, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I said, Jerry, let's get away. Let's just go. Let's go to the Catskill Mountains in New York State. Uh, we'll rent a cabin for three days. We can do some work over there. But she loves nature. She's a nature buff, you know, just to get your soul. She said, ah, it's too much of a hassle. And why spend the money? I said, no, no, honey. I think it's really important for you. Mm. And I said, we'll just work less. We'll, we'll get stuff done. You got a couple of meetings. I got a couple of meetings. It'll be fine. And that uh, we're here. So that's, to me, leading out of your marriage is that, I'm paying attention to how God's built her and we're one. So yeah, she, she's not the lead pastor. Never was a lead pastor in your life. And even now I lead emotionally on the discipleship. She doesn't want to lead it. She contributes as she wants to. And she does a number of things, very strategic, but, but it flows out of who she is, but we flow together because we're married. Mm. Now it doesn't mean she has to even work in this ministry. She could choose to be a teacher or a doctor, but the point is that we're one in discerning together what's we're two very different people, like any couple, but we're discerning together how we're going to serve Jesus. And uh, but at any point, if Jerry felt like living in New York City and being married to a lead pastor of an intense situation like our church was, I told her I'd leave. I'll leave. I said I, I felt called to New York, felt called to plant New Life Fellowship and pastor there. But I felt called to her first. So mm -hmm. our board knew that if Jerry ever got tired of living in Queens, like she couldn't take it anymore, because it's, it's a drag to live in Queens, to be honest. It's a very tough place to live. And I told her, we'll, we'll leave. If you don't mm -hmm. want to be here, you don't feel the grace from God to be here, then we'll go. And we're still there. Okay, we're still in Queens. <laughs> I can't believe we're still here. Uh, there, but the point is our marriage is first. And that does change everything. Slow, talk about slowing you down limits. I, I didn't work 60, 70 hour weeks anymore. Um, I co-parented and it was gigantic in so many levels. Hmm. I feel like when I was reading Emotionally Healthy, Healthy Discipleship, which is the most recent book, it felt like a outworking of, like it, it took me, I, I loved reading it and I'm, I'm enjoying it because it took me deeper into some of the themes that emerged in other books, but it helped me really as, as a pastor right now, it really helped me think about our church, give language to it, and and, and yeah. evaluate some of the decisions, how we allocate resources, uh, the culture of our church. And there's so much we could bring up, but I wanted to end with just one thing. You're talking one of the the structure of the book. You address seven marks of yeah. emotionally healthy, of healthy emotional healthy discipleship, and um, one of the marks that I think I just think would be a great place to end together is um, embracing God's gift of limits. <laughs> 
that has been hugely life-giving for me mm. to bump up my to a time limit i can't do more yeah. uh, to a gifting limit and to just i never would have thought of it had i not been equipped through reading that i can turn that into worship that god's god yes. i'm not can we end with you just sharing a bit more about that idea of embracing yeah. god's gifts of limits it, it, it's it's again it went back to western you got to always understand that's why it's so important to understand historical theology in the global church because we're in the west the west we we do ascent we do progress we do bigger better faster we don't do limits we don't do diminishment but yet there really is a biblical theology of the limits um and uh so let me just tie God's gift of limits to our rebellion. Adam and Eve mm. were given in the garden a limit of a tree that was right in front of them. Do not eat from this tree. God didn't give an explanation. He just said, trust me. They they crossed that limit and they grabbed the fruit and they that was their rebellion. Um, when we violate God's limits he puts in front of us, so I'm married, that's a limit. It's a limit. Jerry's a gift of a limit to me. Um, and, but if I violate that, I mean, I'm in enemy territory, I'm in big trouble. So you have a church, you have you know, how God built you physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc. And you think of John the Baptist, you know, a person can receive only what's given him from heaven. He was fine. He had his booming ministry. People start leaving him going to Jesus. They say, Hey, John, everyone's following Jesus. He goes, Hey, you know, I must decrease. He must increase, but a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. So how... How wonderful. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. How freeing. Mm. God's given you a certain number of days, Jason. And so even your church, you want your church to embrace who, what's God's unique anointing for your church. And what's, what's he, how does he want this to unfold? But don't try to be somebody else. I mean, like, why would you want to be the church that's, you know, 10 blocks away, even though it's triple in size necessarily? You want to just be what God's calling you to be and do what God's calling you to do. That's so freeing. Um, but to rebel and say, no, no, I'm going to do this because I want to do it for your glory, God. Well, is it really for your God's glory? I mean, it's just, those are just words. And that's why, again, back to a slow down spirituality is so important. Gift of limits is so freeing. It's always been one of my you know greatest struggles, but greatest gifts. I always underestimate how long things take. It's a, it's a mm. running joke for me and Jerry. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Uh, and, uh, God's put limits all around us. You have to sleep, you have to eat. I mean, you think about the limits, they're enormous the kind of children you have. I mean, but then we discern God in those limits. That's the, that's the beauty of it. So how's mm. God coming through these limits? So I only write a few books. I don't write a lot of books. I just write a few, but you know what? There'll be a few good books. And because of my limits, I only can, I write because I, my marriage is first. My walk with Jesus is first. My four daughters, got a couple grand, got some grandchildren. I mean, I got, I got there are other things that God's put in front of me here that therefore I'm not going to work a 70 hour week because of my values and commitments as a Jesus mm -hmm. follower. I want to be flourishing in my 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, bearing fruit. Um, and so I'm looking at the long, you want to always look at the long haul. I'm concerned mm -hmm. about you, Jason, when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that you're flourishing. And uh, that's, to me, you're building a life like that. And, it, you know, it's totally, you have a great future ahead of you. And just take it slow. Don't rush. Mm -hmm. Don't compare. And uh, embrace limits. You'll be very, very glad you did. Well, I'm hugely grateful to Pete and the team for making time to share with us today. I hope you guys liked that conversation as much as I did. I'm always finding myself so grateful for this opportunity um, to host these conversations because this is what I'm working on, trying to figure out how do I do this here in Vancouver as a pastor? How do I live a slowed down life and pursue emotional health and spiritual vibrancy while leading a church? And so if you feel like it hit close to home for you, you're with me on that one. I wanna to commend to all of you who are listening, 
really all of the work of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The two books we mentioned the most was Emotionally Healthy Discipleship and The Emotionally Healthy Leader. You can find all of those resources online. They have courses for church. They have courses for congregations and small group to be part of. And so I just really encourage you to check out all of the things they're providing. Such meaningful work, such thoughtful work. In two weeks, we have my friend, Father Matthew Francis on. Him and I sat down in person to record this one. I'm excited for you to hear it. And right now I wanna to throw to Jaden, who's part of our team, to unpack this story of Pastor Ali and Pastor Buena from Surrey, BC. So here it is. Here is the story of two churches, three inspiring people, Max, Ali, Buena, and how they all intersect. In the summer of 2019, I scanned the dining hall of a campground in White Rock, BC, looking for a place to sit. I was there to speak for the first session of a youth camp for a church called Fleetwood International Church, a community that gathered about 20 minutes from where I was pastoring at the time. The room was loud and chaotic, nothing out of the ordinary for a summer camp. I found a seat across from a teenage boy who was different from the majority of the students in the room. He was calm and serene as he picked away at the food on his plate. After asking him a few questions, I found out that his name was Max and that he had recently moved to Canada. When I asked him what he liked most about living here, he thought for a moment and said, it's easier to sleep at night without all the noise. Puzzled by a response that didn't include talk of snowy hikes or polite people, I asked a few clarifying questions. I quickly found out that the noise that Max was referring to was missiles touching down in the surrounding city where he once called home. Max was a Syrian refugee who had recently come to Canada with the help of a church called Jesus Way Fellowship. And apparently, he wasn't the only young refugee in the room. Now, how the stories of Jesus Way Fellowship and Fleetwood International Church intertwine, I'll get to in a few moments. And trust me, it's worth the wait. But for now, let me tell you about how Max ended up there. Rewinding the story by a couple of decades, I want to introduce you to a true inspiration. His name is Ali. In the late winter and early spring of 1993, Ali was fasting. It was the month of Ramadan, a holy time of prayer for practicing Muslims, which Ali was at the time. He had fasted during the month of Ramadan his entire life, but this time would be different. This year, Ali encountered Jesus Christ in one of his dreams. The dream was vivid and compelling, so compelling that Ali and his family surrendered their lives to Christ and began following him. Twelve years after that profound conversion moment, Ali started a church with three other families that was called Jesus Way Fellowship. To Max, Ali is Pastor Ali. From the early days of Jesus Way Fellowship, Pastor Ali and the team made a vow that their community would grow not through Christians transferring from another church to their own, but from new conversions alone. We wanted to reach out to the people that belong to nowhere, says Pastor Ali. In 2016, the Canadian government welcomed 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada, people who truly felt they didn't belong anywhere. This struck a chord in Pastor Ali's heart. So through City of Refuge, a sponsorship agreement holder, Jesus Way Fellowship decided to sponsor families to come to Canada. This was the beginning of a trickling effect where refugee family after refugee family would come to know Jesus and be baptized ultimately calling Jesus Way Fellowship their home. From 2016 on, ministry to refugees became the focal point of their mission. We welcome refugees and we cover them with love. We know that this is something that God will use for his purpose, says Pastor Ali. Today, the Jesus Way family is around 120 people, with roughly 70% of those people being refugees like Max. Oh, and I didn't mention, Pastor Ali volunteers as the senior pastor of Jesus Way Fellowship while working a job in IT as a systems architect. When I asked him about the difficulty of balancing these two roles, Pastor Ali quickly and humbly honored the leadership team of the church. Can you see why I think he's such an inspiration? Now the story could end there. All of that in and of itself is beautiful and soaked in the values of God's kingdom, but it does get better. 
Why was Max, a refugee connected through Jesus Way Fellowship, at the youth retreat of Fleetwood International Church? Well, in the early days of Jesus Way Fellowship, they were kicked out of the clubhouse of a townhouse complex that they were gathering in, and it was Fleetwood International Church that opened their doors for this budding community to gather. Fleetwood International Church has been so generous with us, says Pastor Ali. There are no words for me to express how kind they are. Fleetwood International Church and Jesus Way Fellowship began to run a number of ministries in partnership with one another, one of them being their youth ministry. Here enters the last person I want to introduce you to, Buena. Buena is the youth pastor for Pursuit Youth, the youth ministry of Fleetwood International Church, and the one who invited me to speak that day. It is a diverse group that I didn't know was really two churches working together and a hub of healing for refugees like Max. Buena, who considers herself a big sister to these refugee youth, can share story upon story of refugees hearing the gospel for the first time and coming to know Jesus with their families ultimately following suit. Max, for example, came to know Jesus and his aunt, mom, and uncle shortly thereafter. In Buena's words, we are seeing that there is a huge harvest. And the truth is they're seeing it because they decided to partner with a church that was in need. Now, there's one last thing I want to highlight about this youth ministry. I mentioned earlier that they are diverse, and I said that very intentionally. According to Buena, at the same youth camp I spoke at just a few years later, there were 15 or more different countries represented. She herself is Filipino-American, and the students she pastors are Indigenous, Mexican, African, Asian, Arabic, Kurdish, and the list goes on. Now, that kind of community, of course, comes with unique challenges, but it profoundly echoes the Apostle John's words about the redeemed church in Revelation 7-9. John writes, A great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And this is what baffles me. These two churches in humble partnership, with inspiring evangelistic convictions, where the displaced were finding healing, with a youth ministry that looked a lot like heaven, was just 20 minutes away from me. And I had no idea. God was doing a great thing in my area, using some great churches, and it wasn't on my radar. There are many important lessons and reminders that might have surfaced hearing this story about Max, Ali, and Buena. Perhaps one of them is that God is always doing much in his church, and often right under our noses. And in the same way that that was true for me, it's likely true for you. Who knows what the Lord is doing in and through the churches around you right now? Stories that if you knew them, would widen your view of his kingdom and fill you with hope. God is on the move in our nation, and we don't need to look far to see it. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah sharing the heart of the Lord in Isaiah 43:19. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. My simple prayer in closing is this. Father, would that be true in Canada? And would you help us see it? In Jesus' name, amen.